upon our laps and in our hearts. Speak, Lord. Your children listen. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. An incident took place a few weeks ago in Long Beach, California, that powerfully depicts the plight of the poor. Associated Press release. I have it right here. Six-year-old girl with mother go down to a laundromat. Some people are too poor to own their washer and dryer. So she goes to the laundromat. She takes her cousins along, according to the Associated Press. While mother is filling the washers, let's see the darks go in this one, and I'm going to put the lights over here, and let's see what I'll do over there. While mom is doing that, the kids have a little frolicking, as children do, and the six-year-old says, hey, let's play hide-and-seek. I hide, you find, you go count. So while her cousins are off counting, she's looking where she's going to hide, hide in this little laundromat. She's, These are front-loading washers. I'll hide in a washer. And so she crawls inside. That washer gets all the way inside and pulls the door shut. Mother's coming down the line. Let's see, I got soap and all these. Let's see, I guess I got to start putting some quarters in here. So, mom goes down the line, and the moment the wash cycle kicks on in the six year old's washer, the doors lock. Now, some of you are getting sweaty palms thinking about claustrophobia. You can imagine this moment. She is there, and she's, she's, boom, boom, boom. She's trying to get out. Get me out. Boom, boom, boom. Mother is going up and down, of course, and the water is coming up on the little girl. She is pounding against the glass. Finally, Mama sees the petrified face of her baby, and Mama screams, and Mother comes over, not knowing that the whole system is locked down. You don't want water spilling on a laundromat floor, and so they lock the door. She cannot get it open. She's pulling, she's screaming, and finally, in panic, the poor mother races out into the streets and she just waves and a 36-year-old passerby screeches to a halt. He's a big man. He goes racing in. Where is it? And he grabs and he cannot. He is pounding with his arm and he cannot. And the water's just going up higher and higher and higher. He races back to his trunk, pulls out the tire iron, comes back, smashes the glass, reaches through the glass and drags her out just in time. According to the uh, AP, the girl and her rescuer were taken to a hospital where the child underwent surgery to repair cuts to her face and body. She's in stable condition. And the 36-year-old rescuer received stitches for cuts on his arm and was released. Can you imagine? I read that story. And I thought to myself, this is, this, this is what it means to be poor. To be economically entrapped and there is no way you can rescue yourself. We got a lot of highfalutin reasoning that goes on in some circles that suggests, you know what, just, just get, get, get with it. Get a job. Get yourself out of this. But ladies and gentlemen, it is more than clear. There are some holes that you simply cannot dig yourself out of. In fact, the more you dig, the deeper you go. Unless somebody rescues him or her, she is doomed. Now, of course, that's true about all of us, isn't it? Unless somebody rescues us, it's the truth of salvation by faith. Unless somebody, capital S, somebody comes along and rescues the likes of you and me, we are all lost. Isn't that right? We are trapped, trapped by our guilt. We trapped by our sins. We cannot get out. Is that not true? 
which is why I've been a bit intrigued with some of the, the discussion going on on this campus regarding this present series of sermons that we're in. Student movement this week. I like to read the student movement. They're doing a great job. Student movement this week devoted an entire column to this series. Begins like this. Dwight Nelson's sermons on the poor this week and last annoyed me. Hallelujah. <laughs> annoyed me. Now, we've we got to find out why is this columnist annoyed. It wasn't his urging me to help the poor that got to me. I agreed with him on that. What seemed wrong, though, was that he, I felt he made giving to the poor a condition for going to heaven. What's up with that? Hold on, hold on, hold on. Open your Bible for a moment, please, to James. This is not James, the brother of John. This is James, the stepbrother of Jesus. Open your Bible to, the, to uh, James, just for a brief moment. James chapter 2. I'm in the New Living Translation here. I like it. I like the way it's rendered here. James chapter 2, please. Open your Bible. James 2, and let's, let's pick it up. Uh, yeah, let's pick it up right here in verse 14. James 2, 14. Dear brothers and sisters, what's the use of saying you have faith if you don't prove it by your actions? That kind of faith can't save anyone. Verse 15. Suppose you see a brother or sister who needs food or clothing, and you say, well, goodbye, and I love you, man. God bless you. Stay warm and eat well. But then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? Verse 17. So you see, it isn't enough just to have faith. Faith that doesn't show itself by good deeds is no faith at all. It is dead and useless. And that's why Martin Luther, you know, got a hold of the epistle of James and he said, this is an epistle of straw. You don't get salvation by faith in James. You know what? You don't. You, I mean, you do, but James is big on what you just read. Now, not to be outdone, another J. There's another J in the New Testament. His name is John. He weighs in on the subject. So let's go back to toward the end of the Bible. First John, near the end. First John. Because he said, don't leave me out of this discussion, please. I have a word to say. First John. Not, these two are not brothers, right? This is John, young John, who wrote Revelation. John, uh, first John chapter 3. Let's pick this up. Please, in verse 17, first John 317. But if anyone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need and refuses to help, how can God's love be? Explain that to me. John says, how can God's love be in that person? Pick it up. Verse 18. Dear children. Verse 18. Are you, are you catching this? Dear children, let us stop just saying we love each other and let us really show it by our actions. So are we saved by faith or by our actions? There's one more Jay that wants to get in on this, and this Jay actually weighed in first, and I'm sure James and John were basing their, their convictions on this Jay, and I'm talking about the Lord Jesus, and I'm talking about the Sermon on the Mount. So go back to the book of uh, the Gospel of St. Matthew. Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Take a look at this. Matthew 5, Jesus weighs in on the subject. That's, it's just one line here. Matthew 5, verse 16. You have it? I want, to, uh, I want to read this from the New King James Version. I brought two Bibles today. 
Because if it's salvation by works, I'm going to make sure that I have enough Bibles to get saved. So this is going to be Matthew 5. All right, this is the New King James. Matthew 5, we'll put it up on the screen for you, those of you watching on television right now. Verse 16, Jesus speaking, Sermon on the Mount. Let your light, wait a minute, let your light so shine, he says. Let your light so shine before men, and that would include women, wouldn't it? Let your light so shine that they may see your good what? They may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Oh my, so what is it? Is it is it by faith or is it by works? Do you know what? You put the three J's together and it is absolutely clear that you are saved by a faith that works. In fact, that point is so critical, we're going to put it in our study guide right now. Take your study guide out, please. It's in your bulletin. Our ushers are prepared to put a study guide in your hand. Even as we speak. All right, ushers, thank you. Hold your hand up. I want every student here, every faculty who would like to, you know, sometimes when these are handed out, we kind of say, listen, this is kind of, this, uh, I'm above this. This is too, this is too simplistic for me. Well, that's okay. If, if that's the way you feel, then don't ask for one. But if you would like one, I'd like the children here to have one. Let's fill it out. This point is so, so critical. Solidarity. You see it there? Let's put it on the screen. Solidarity with the poor is faith that, write in the word that, it is faith that works. Now, wait a minute. I want to say to those of you watching on television right now, did we put the website up already? Uh, those of you watching on television, I want to be sure that you go to our website because if you go to our website, you'll get this study guide is there right now. You can go log on. You see that there? www.pmchurch.org. Look for Repairs of the Breach Part 4. This is Part 4. You can find Part 3 there, Part 2 if you've missed it, or Part 1. It's all there waiting for you. Now you can get the, uh, you can actually do this uh, study with us, this Bible teaching. This, I'm so excited about this teaching today. Make sure that the first blank you have it filled in. Solidarity with the poor is faith that works. And I'm so glad to report to you, by the way, that Bjorn Carlman, that is exactly the point he made in the column. Good job, Bjorn. You write well. You, you, you made the point. You got our attention with that opener. He makes the point well. That's Jesus' point. Jesus says, look it. Do good works. Not to draw attention to you, but do good works so that when they see your works, they will glorify your Father who is in heaven. How can we glorify our Father who is in heaven? That, my dear friends, is precisely what Isaiah 58 is wrestling with. Giving us a very practical and specific way to glorify Him. I know it's in your face. I know it's kind of punchy. But you know what? Somebody said about the Gospel. This is the Gospel. The Gospel comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comfortable. And so that's what's happening in Isaiah 58. Some of us are a little bit uneasy about this. We're talking about it by the water cooler and we're talking about it in the hallways. You know, I don't know about this. Why is there such, such an emphasis on the poor? Shouldn't we just kind of get on with it? Isaiah 58 won't let us get on with it. God says, wait a minute, listen to me, listen to me. And so, by the grace of God, that's what we're trying to do. Isaiah 58, fair and square. Coming at us. I was visiting with one of our members after, after House of Prayer. I tell you, I love House of Prayer here in this church. Wednesday nights where what we do is we pray. After House of Prayer, we had a committee. And then I'm visiting afterwards, Claude Hines. And Claude says, you know, Dwight, uh, Greta and I have been listening to this series. In fact, some weeks ago, I was saying to Greta, look, all we do is we come to this wonderful stained glass worship, but doesn't it make a difference? Why isn't it making a difference? We have to do something to change the world. Claude is absolutely right. 
In fact, President George W. Bush made that very point in his State of the Union address. Did you see it? Yeah, that's the point he made. He said, we are a mighty and affluent nation, and to whom much is given, much is required. So I went on to the White House website. Man, can you really do that on the Internet? Yes, you can. Whitehouse.gov. And I got a copy of his speech. May I read to you just a line from the speech? Our fourth goal, the president said to a packed chamber, to the packed chambers of Congress, our fourth goal is to apply the compassion of America to the deepest problems of America for so many in our country, the homeless and the fatherless, the addicted. For them, the need is great. Yet, oh, listen to this. Yet, there is power, wonder-working power in the goodness and idealism and faith of the American people. And the moment the president, did you catch that? The moment the president said, there is power, wonder-working power. I looked at Karen and I said, wait a minute. Power, wonder-working power. I grabbed my pen and I scribbled it down. Isn't there some kind of hymn that we sing that has those words in it? Power, wonder-working power. Oh, that was brilliant, Mr. President. Because the mainline denominations, shoo, didn't recognize it. Atheist, shoo, didn't hear it. Agnostic, shoo, missed it. The vast secular majority of America, shoo, didn't get it. But the base that the president wants, the evangelicals, when they heard power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb, there is power. They probably started chanting and singing as the president preached. Brilliant. I know I might have been a speechwriter, but that was brilliant. You see? And what is he talking about? Faith-based initiatives to whom much is given. Let's, I agree with the president right there, I do. You go out, he says, America, go out and make a difference. But listen, to be, to be quite frank with you, I'm not concerned about what the president wants, but I am deeply concerned about what God wants. And God wants something here in Isaiah 58. Oh, He wants it so badly. Open your Bible, please. Isaiah 58. I'll stay in the New King James for now. Isaiah 58. Just two verses. We've been here before. Our whole series is coming out of this theme passage of Isaiah 58. You want to know what I want? God says, you want to know what I command you? Ah, this is it. You want to know what is my red-hot passion? This is it. Is not this, verse 6, is not this the fast? You want to know my passion? What I'm passionate about? Is not this the fast that I have chosen? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke. But it goes on in verse 7. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry? That you bring to your house the poor who are cast out. And when you see the naked, that you cover him. That's not counsel for what to do in the springtime on campus. That's thinking a little more radical kind of uh, covering. When you see the naked, that you cover him. And notice this, we skip over this so quickly. And not hide yourself from your own, how's it read? From your own flesh. God says you want to know what my passion is? Feed the hungry, clothe the naked, bring in the poor within your own flesh. Would you, would you please mark that in your study guide right now? Within your own flesh. Solidarity with the poor begins with your own flesh. 
All right. Which you could also read within your own flesh. You could read within your own family. Write it in. The, the, the next line, within your own family. And in fact, the New Living Translation says your own relatives. I mean, that's, a, you know, th- that would be the height of calloused hard-heartedness, would it not? I mean, is it Paul and to Timothy, a man who does not care for his own family is worse than an infidel? Isn't that, isn't that it? So you talk about your own flesh and blood, but it, you can also expand it so that, would you write this in, please? With, within your own capital F family. Within your own family. Because let's face it, ladies and gentlemen, the poor are not only out there, the poor are in here. They are our own. The poor, our own. In fact, you know what? The Old Testament treatment of God's solidarity with the poor is almost exclusively devoted to the poor within, would you write that in, within the community of faith. The New Testament and the Old, I'm telling you, I've checked the passages out. They are laser focused, most of them, on what are you doing for the people within the community of faith. In fact, let's go back. This is, outside of Isaiah 58, I think this is probably the most significant passage in the Old Testament dealing with the poor. Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 15. Would you turn back in your Bible, please? If you've got a Bible there in the, in the pew rack in front of you, grab that Bible out. Take a look at this. Deuteronomy chapter 15. This is the New King James Version. Deuteronomy chapter 15. Let's pick it up. God speaking through Moses. Let's pick it up in verse 7. If there is among you Andrews University, Pioneer Memorial Church. Those of you watching on television, your own little community. If there is among you a poor man of your brethren, you could say sisters. If there is a poor man or poor woman among you within any of the gates in your land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart nor shut your hand from your poor brother. God, am I my brother's? Am I my poor brother's keeper? Yep. How about my poor sister's? Yep. Yep. Verse 8. But you shall open your hand wide to him and willingly lend him sufficient for his need, whatever he needs. Verse 9. Beware, lest there be a wicked thought in your heart saying, the seventh year, the year of release is at hand. You see, every seven years, boom, all debts canceled. Wouldn't you love to live in that society? Every seven years, debts canceled. If you're an indentured, you, you have to sell yourself to get, uh, to get some money, so I'm going to work for you for the rest of the seven-year period. You get freed at the seven-year period. What God is saying is, hey, listen, you realize there's only one year left you're not going to hire him, are you? You're not going to help him because you know you're going to lose it all within a year. Don't think that evil thought, he says. Don't you do that. Your eye, if your eye be evil, this is verse 9, if your eye be evil against your poor brother and you give him nothing and he cry out to the Lord against you, and it will become sin. It becomes sin among you. Verse 10, you shall surely give to him and your heart should not be grieved when you give to him for the Lord loves a cheerful giver. Because this thing, for this thing, the Lord your God will bless you. Next time we're together in a few weeks, the phenomenal blessings that God unleashes when we take seriously this invitation to help the poor. The Lord is going to bless you 
in all your works and in all to which you put your hand. Finally, verse 11, for the poor will never cease from the land. Therefore, I command you, saying, you shall open your hand wide to your brother, to your poor and your needy in your land. Notice he doesn't say to their poor, to their needy in their land. No, they're in your midst. The poor are yours. Open your hand to your own poor. The poor, by the way, did you catch that in verse 11? The poor will never cease from the land. You remember when Judas was hissing? Just like the serpent. Judas said, oh, I can't believe it. That woman wasting all that money in that alabaster box on Jesus' feet. Why, he hissed in a loud stage whisper. That should have been sold and the money given to the poor. Judas wanted to simply line the long sleeves of his tunic. That's all. I love the picture of Jesus. He leaps. I tell you what, this is Jesus. Oh, Lord, give me your heart and mind. He always leaps to the defense of the defenseless and the helpless. Just like that he speaks. You know, nothing, nothing. As Pastor Esther prayed a moment ago, help us to hate the things you hate. God hates nothing more than injustice and unfairness. And Jesus leaped. He said, hey, leave her alone. Leave her alone. Silence in the room. She's sobbing. Leave her alone. I want to tell you something. Let's put the line here. He quotes from Deuteronomy 15.11. There in Matthew 26, he says, you will have the poor with you always. But me, you do not always have, and she has done this for my burial. Leave her alone. Back off. Shut up exactly what he said. Both Testaments make the point incontrovertibly. The poor, would you write it in please? The poor you will always have with you. So, what are you going to do about them, God asks. What are you going to do? Ah, I want to see what the primitive church in the beginning did for the poor. I want to take a look at this. This is an incredible picture. But, but before we look at the picture, remember our first teaching on this subject? We noted the new generation coming, the millennials, the 20-somethings, you, are, you who are 20-somethings and the late teens, 24 earmarks of this new generation. Two of those earmarks, I remind you, this generation, I'm talking about the students at Andrews University age, 20-somethings, this generation shares a concern for the plight of the poor, particularly in urban centers. Read Benton Harbor, the most depressed urban center outside of Detroit in Michigan. All right? So this generation has a concern for the plight of the poor and number two, has a passion for community building. They want, this generation wants to build community. That's why I'm so excited about this generation because you know what? The characteristics of this generation are, could almost be laid down as a template against the church in Acts chapter 2. Open your Bible to Acts chapter 2. Check it out. The road to the future leads to the past. Take a look at this. Acts chapter 2. We go back to primitive Christianity to find out how its postmodern expression ought to be lived. Acts chapter 2. Acts 2. Oh, I love this story. You know, Peter is preaching his heart out. He gives an altar call. You remember how many people came forward? 3,000, you're right. Pick it up in verse 41. 3,000. You know what? We just went, had our business session. Monday night, our membership here is 3,236. The entire... This church filled twice. See what we got here? Filled twice. Not quite, but almost. Verse 41. This is Acts chapter 2. Verse 41. 
This is the new living. Those who believe what Peter said were baptized and added to the church about 3,000 in all. Verse 42. And they joined with the other believers and devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, sharing the Lord's Supper and in prayer. Community building was really big in the beginning. Contagious connecting communities. They were big on it. Our watchword here. They were big on it. That's where we got it from. Verse 43. And a deep sense of awe came over them all. And the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. Verse 44. And all the believers met together constantly. They loved community and they shared everything they had. Verse 45. Why? They even sold their possessions and shared the proceeds with those in need. Verse 46. They worshiped together at the temple each day. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper. They shared their meals. They are huge on community and the poor with great joy and generosity. Verse 47. And all the while praising God, enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And guess what? They were contagious because the way they lived was powerful and God kept adding to their group those who were being saved. You know, I love that picture. I dream of a day when that is the picture of the Pioneer Memorial Church and Andrews University. The word will be out. The word will be out. I dream of a day when every Seventh-day Adventist church and every village and every town and every city and every country will live the way of the primitive church in the beginning. Is this a little blip on the radar screen? You know, some little aberration? Nope. Just turn two more chapters. Chapter 4, take a look at this. Verse 32, And all the believers were of one heart and mind. Isn't this something? And they felt that what they owned was not their own. They shared everything they had. Verse 33, And the apostles gave powerful witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's great favor was upon them all. Finally, verse 34, There was no poverty among them. There was no poverty at Andrews among them. There was no poverty at Pioneer among them. Because people who owned land or houses sold them and brought the money to the apostles to give to the others in need. Time out, time out. Hold it right here. There are some Christians who are reading this right now who are perturbed and disturbed by this sort of a template, naturally protective of their wallets, their pocketbooks, and their portfolios, they are already saying in their minds, but this does not apply to the third postmodern third millennium. Well, I want you to know, my wealthy friend, that you are absolutely right. Yep, you are. You see, there's a word. I predict nobody used this word this week in any conversation anywhere on campus except maybe the history of the philosophy department. And that word is egalitarianism. How many use the word? Put your hand up. Be brave and admit it. Not a hand goes up. All right. What is the definition of egalitarian? Let's put it in. Let's, let's fit it right here into our study guide. Egalitarian of or relating to or believing in political and social equality. Write it in. Political and social equality. I mean, a vivid example of egalitarian kind of living. You remember Chairman Mao Zedong? You remember that name out of history? 
Communist China. I've been to Communist China. It was long after Chairman Mao was ruling. But you remember, he believed in an egalitarian society. Everybody wears gray like me. Everybody goes to the same school, same kind of schools. Everybody in the same recreation. Everybody shops at the one department store in China. Everybody lives this way. And what he did was he leveled the playing field. There are no diverse humps. Everybody's the same. That is egalitarianism. But God is not egalitarian. I'm indebted to this insightful observation by a professor at our sister college, Columbia Union College. Now I have to step back because this name is a big one. Zdravko. Zdravko Plantak. It's got to be either Serbian or Croatian. And he teaches over, he's chairman of the religion department and he's a philosopher. He wrote a piece in the November 2002 Adventist Review, and I want to read it to you. You can follow along. God the Creator is not egalitarian. He doesn't force everybody into economic, political, social, social uniformity. No, 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 no. To be sure. Now notice. God made us equal in dignity, equal in value. But God did not make us equal in gifts. Some people He made more intelligent than others. Doesn't that just bug you? Why, oh God? So some people He made more intelligent than others. Some more handsome or beautiful than others. Some more healthy than others. Some are tall, others are not. Some are thin, others are not. He's made us all different. Our doctrine of creation is about an equality of value with a diversity of gifts. Oh, that's good. Which means that what God and Holy Scripture champions, would you get this in your study guide? What the God of Holy Scripture champions is equality of opportunity. Opportunity. That's what He wants everybody to have an equal a shot at. What are you talking about? Well, as soon as I give you time to write that in, those are two long words, equality of opportunity. What's He talking about? Equal access to the Gospel. God says, look, I want the whole earth. Don't you say that only one country, the first world, gets the major gospel, two-thirds... No, I want the whole earth to get the gospel. Equal access to the gospel. Equal access to the good earth. This earth does not belong to the United States. We gobble up the vast majority of its resources. It does not belong to us. Equal access to the good earth. And finally, equal access. Look at that. Food, water, health care, and education. You see, if you can educate a new generation, and that's what Andrews University is all about, that's why you're going all over the world when you leave this place. Because if we can educate a new, if we can educate the young, they can, some of them, break out of the shackles of ignorance that, is, that, that have held them. Equal opportunity. If God, but here, here's the question. Look, okay, Dwight, if God champions equal opportunity, then why does He say, I'm telling you, you're going to have the poor, all the way to the end of time. You will always have the poor in your midst. That's a, that's a fair question to raise. And we have to answer it if we are, are, go, are going to respond appropriately. You know why God says we're going to have the poor till the end of time? I'll tell you why. Because in a fallen world, people and peoples, villages and cities, regions and whole countries fall down. They collapse. This is not God's land. This is, there's an enemy that says, I'm the prince of this world. This is the way I rule. Because of that, when a system of life collapses, ecologically or economically, militarily or socially, like it looks it's going to happen, that poor land is going to... 
When that happens, when human nature or mother nature itself breaks down, people are caught in the fall. They're caught in the crossfire. God says, trust me, you will always, where the enemy rules, you will always have the poor. The poor you will always have with you. He said, I can't, not, not yet. I, my kingdom of love and opportunity, I cannot institute it yet. And so while we wait, we suffer. This is a vital point, and I wish you'd fill your study guide in with it. We suffer while we wait. The God who loves those, please be clear on this, the God who loves those who suffer leaves those who suffer in our midst to see what we will do for them. It's an issue of character. Not theirs, but ours. The poor you will always have, have with you. God says, I love the suffering. Of course I love people who suffer. I am leaving some of them. I am leaving them there for you. When your poor brother comes to you now, I'm going to watch you. What will you do? Is that salvation by faith or salvation by works? James said it's clear. If you pat that poor brother on the back and say, Love you, man. Be fed somewhere. You have no faith. You have no faith. It does not work at all. That's the point. The poor, Jesus said, the poor you will always have with you. Dwight, I'm going to confront your selfishness. I'm going to grow your character. I'm going to test your love. In a beautiful chapter entitled, God's Care for the Poor, these words appear in Patriarchs and Prophets. Read this. This is some, The last line is the stinger. Speaking of the laws of Moses, there is nothing after their recognition of the claims of God, that more distinguishes the laws given by Moses than the liberal, tender, and hospitable spirit enjoined toward the poor. Although God had promised greatly to bless His people, it was not God's design that poverty should be wholly unknown among them. You're going to have it, he says. He declared that the poor should never cease out of the land. There would ever be those among his people who would call into exercise our sympathy, tenderness, and benevolence. Then as now, persons were subject to misfortune, sickness, loss of property. Yet, here comes the stinger. So long as they followed the instructions given to them by God, there were no beggars among them, neither any who suffered for food. Isn't that something? God says, if you take Isaiah 58, if you take it, you won't have any needy among you. Not for food. They won't have to beg. Which means, and here's the whole point of today's teaching, which means that the poor among us are our golden opportunity. Write it in. They are our golden opportunity to exercise the golden rule. That's it. The poor in our midst. Some of you listening to me right now are saying, Dwight, I am the poor. You very well may be. Who am I to argue? Your presence, dear student friend, community resident, your presence in our midst is a golden opportunity for us to exercise and practice the golden rule. What's the golden rule? What's the golden rule? Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you shall do to others as you want what? As you want them to do to you. 
It's the golden rule. So let's just turn the tables. Let's say that that poor woman living in, uh, in Garland, let's say that that poor, ma- that, that poor man living in Beechwood, that poor child over there in Maplewood, let's just say that the tables are turned. Your time, your talents, your treasure are theirs, and you're the poor one. What would you want them to do for you? Jesus said, Whatever you want her to do for you, were the tables reversed, you do it to her. The poor in our midst are our golden opportunity to exercise the golden rule, just like Jesus. Just like His primitive church in the book of Acts. That's what was happening. That was the golden rule. They had faith, but it was a compelling faith that was proven by their good works. Which is why Jesus was so passionate just before He was executed. That Thursday night, John 13, 35. I want to tell you something, people. By this the whole world will know that you are My people if you have love for one another. That's it. You take care of each other. The world knows you're Mine. A couple of Friday nights ago, having some moments for quiet reflection, I came across this. A line a hundred years ago. Take a look at this, will you? I think I have it in the, in the study guide. As Christ had loved them, read this, the disciples were to love one another. They were to show forth the love abiding in their hearts for men, women, and children by doing all in their power for salvation. And now, here comes the line. But they were to reveal a specially tender love for all of the same faith. Isn't that some? Love the world, but let the world see a specially tender love within the community, within this campus, within your community. A specially tender love for all of the same faith. Ladies and gentlemen, that was the explosive secret of the primitive church in the beginning. In fact, would you put it in your, in your study guide, please? That is why they're living in solidarity with each other, the poor and the rich alike. That became their most potent evangelistic strategy. Write it down, the most potent evangelistic strategy. You know, we just finished Hope for the Homeland here in this region of America. You know, and it was a, it was a valiant effort and good things happened. But the fact is that by the masses they stayed away. God never intended for the world to be reached by mailing handbills. Handbills cannot save a single person. I'm an evangelist. I believe in evangelism and we have to use handbills. But if the Seventh-day Adventist church goes on relying on handbills, we will never, ever reach this world. The primitive church is a template for the postmodern church. And that is, you've got the... Rev- People say, I don't, give a, I don't give a rip what you believe. I'm watching how you behave. It's not what you lip, it's what you live. What do you, how do you people treat the poor? I'm on, I'm on campus now and I'm just checking around. How do, you, how do you guys treat the poor? You got a poor guy down the hall in your dormitory? What is it you do for him? Because you've got a stereo, quadraphonic stereo, bar none, and he's got nothing. He can't even play WAUS. What are you doing for him? You know he's poor. You know, you can tell by the way he dresses. You can tell by the way she, she attires herself. What are you doing for the poor? The world doesn't care what we believe right now. They're saying, do you live primitive Christianity in your postmodern community? In fact, that's not original with me. I found a theologian who makes a very significant point. Conrad 
Famer in his compelling book, The Rich, The Poor, and the Bible, in Acts, the mutual solidarity of Christ's community began to exercise a powerful influence on social structures. People have, listen, people have often been surprised that there are so few direct references in the epistles or elsewhere in the New Testament to public witness and proclamation. You don't have public event. Well, you got Paul and you might have Peter. You have a few street corner preachings, but the vast majority happened within the community itself. This is because the community itself was living proof that the grace of God had appeared, bringing salvation to all. It was clear that society did not have to be ruled by force or by exploitation. The community proved otherwise. It represented an alternative, a new lifestyle. Love, togetherness, brotherhood still seemed possible. Ah, do I come on? That's just a theologian. Well, you're right. A century ago, A very wise woman made this observation. The words on the screen. If we would humble ourselves before God and be kind and courteous and tender-hearted and pitiful, there would be one hundred conversions where now there is only uno. One. One hundred to one. You live it. You show it. Kind, tender-hearted, pitiful. Read loving. There will be 100 who will come in and say, boy, whatever you have, I want it. 100 to where now? One. Handbills? One. Radical community of Christ? 100. 100 to 1. Now I know 100, of course, 100 to 1 is a hyperbole. You're right, but the point is inescapable. Jesus is clear. The most potent and powerful force for the post-modern church is to embrace the template of primitive Christianity and live out in our midst a specially tender love for all of the same faith. In the early centuries of Christianity, they would say of the Christians, Oh, see how these people love each other. See how these Christians love each other. See how these Adventists at Andrews, can you imagine that? Look how they treat each other. See it, pioneer. Look how those people love. Hallelujah. Whatever they have, I want it. A specially tender love for all of the same faith. Are there poor today in this congregation right now? Yep. Are they living on this campus? Yep. Are they in our student housing? Yes. What are we going to do? What are we going to do for the poor in our midst? Yeah, anybody have, a, anybody have an idea? What shall we do? I went into one house here. A young couple... Graduates, no, they were undergrad. They're married, but they're undergrad. I went into this house, and in the course of our conversation, the young wife said, hey, you want to look in our refrigerator? I said, sure. She opened a refrigerator. You know what was in the refrigerator? A, a glass. A jar, rather. A jar. And in the jar, corn kernels. And beside it, on a little, on a little uh, plastic plate, a half-used stick of butter. I said, what's that? She said, that's what we eat. I said, what is it? She says, it's popcorn. That's what we eat. Project P? Did you, oh, I, loved the, I, loved, I loved all the posters up here. You, one of them said Project P. Project P. You know what it is? 
Project P comes onto this campus. Get this, ladies and gentlemen. Six times a week. Six times a week. It was founded by, may he rest in peace, Wilson Trickett, who had a burden for the needy in our midst. And he started going to food banks and day-old bakeries and he filled his little van up. He just filled it up six times a week. Right there behind Garland, you can go. Sixty families right now are lining up every time that van comes because they don't have food if the van doesn't show. Cheryl Logan, who's a part of that ministry, told me there is one family here that is living on $35 a month for food. You and I go to Apple Valley and that won't even fill one bag, now will it? And what do we do? We buy four, five, six bags. Put that in the car, please. I'll see you again next week. One little family here, $35. Uh, what kind of car are you driving here as a student? $35. Sixty families lining up. Don't you tell me that the poor are in Benton Harbor. They're in Berrien Springs right here. Some of them are sitting three feet behind you right now. Jesus said, I don't care about your love for the world if you don't have love for your own. The world won't care. We got students here in need. You know that? I get emails, students saying, Dwight, I need help with our, our rent here in the university housing. And the rent here isn't as expensive as it is elsewhere. I got an email from one student this very, this very week who said, Dwight, if you're going to talk about housing, why don't you talk about Andrews University housing? Okay. So I called the housing director. I called Alan Freed. I said, Alan, tell me about housing. I took the notes from our conversation. You know what the man told me? This man, I've met him. I know him. He's a godly man. He told me, he said, Dwight, I lie awake at nights. I look at the ceiling in our bedroom and I ask God, would you give me wisdom to know, to know how long shall I, how long shall we bear? He said, what are you talking about? Well, they, they've done a study of, of rental units in the United States and students, and no offense students, but at the very bottom of the list of renters is students because they have little in their hands and their commitment is even less than that. Student renters the nation over are the toughest. And so he said, I'm asking God, i got families from all over this world. Now he says, look, some of the families I have, some of the families in, in our housing, they are fully sponsored by their sending countries. That's pretty nice, fully sponsored. But I'm noticing that they're not using the money for their sponsorship to pay the rent. They're going further and further behind in the rent. And they're driving a big car and they're making car payments. And, and I'm saying, God, you know, what do I do? I mean, the university can't live on charity. I know it's easy for you and me to sit here and say, well, yeah, just come on, like, uh, get us some help. How do you think it feels to be a Christian man in charge of the housing and having to go around and say, you know, you've missed like three or four months now. I mean, is there anything we can do to help? I mean, we, have, we have students from all over the world. God, God brings students here. This is one of the most cosmopolitan uh, per capita campuses in the United States. Now, let me tell you about the students. You know, these students come from, from a foreign country, and in that foreign country, they are middle class, middle class in that foreign country. When they come here with their pitiful little dollars, I asked Alan Freed, I said, how much does it take to get here? They said, he said, all you have to do is put $2,000 on an account with your name on it at Andrews University, and you can come. Well, it takes a lot more than $2,000 once you get here, as you have all found out. 
There are students who come and they are middle class, middle class in their society. But when they come here, shoom, they are at the bottom of the rung. They're the poor. It's embarrassing for them. Do you, do you think they enjoy that? It is hard on a person's sense of self-esteem when now you're having to show up at the back of a van that drives beside your apartment six days a week in order for you to survive. God knows what our international students go through. This is not a matter of who's, who, where, where, where should we shift the emphasis. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, we are desperately in need. I got an email two weeks ago from one of our students at the seminary who, who wrote me, he said, oh, Pastor Dwight, I need to write to find out if there's any connections you have because I need to have $5,400 by January 16th in order to register. Can you help me? I wish we could help. This congregation, you, you, do you know the money this congregation has? It's whatever you give. We, we bought a color printer back here to see if we could print $20 bills, but they looked so fakey, we knew we could not use them. So we do not manufacture money here. The only money we have is what you give. And we've made a, we, you, you heard Ron Hur a moment ago, we have made a commitment to our kids. You know, when we have, we got international students here who say, I have to get a Christian education. Honey, don't you agree? Yeah, my mama says, I'll have to get a Christian education with you. So father and mother come here and they get their Christian education. And they say, children, no Christian education for you. You go off to public school. And so these yellow buses drive through our campus and pick up our kids and go to public schools around us. Our goal here at Pine for every child to be taught of the Lord. We cannot bring more children into Ruth Murdoch unless you give us more money to bring them into Ruth Murdoch. We don't print it. If you don't give to line three, it doesn't come in. So what shall we do? The poor and the needy are here. Mama and Papa are getting a great education. And I'm not saying that the children aren't. But it seems an anomaly to me that we're educating the least impressionable minds with Christian education and the most impressionable minds, we say, it's okay, take the bus. Ladies and gentlemen, there is no simple solution to this. Do you understand? This is hugely complicated. I just need you to own this with me for a few more seconds. I know you're restless. I am too. Because how long shall we go on not having a special tenderness to those of our own faith. And so this, this, this man writes, he said, would you, would you give me $5,400? I can't. The only money we give is to secondary and, and, and elementary. That's all we have. Not a penny goes to college. We'll help you with food. We'll, our community service center, we'll help you with blankets. We'll help you with clothing. We'll do everything we can. But we can't. We can't. Oh, boy, I read a letter to staff this week. It broke our hearts. This is from one of our students here. Dear Pastor Nelson, I have a serious request to make of you, and it is humiliating to ask. So I will keep myself anonymous, if you please. And here's a please forward a response to the following address. This student says, I suffer from a disease, and then lists the disease. For these years, it's a debilitating disease. It's a progressive disease. This disease is, in, is heightened inflamed by stress. This student has had to go into the hospital. The result, two, three paragraphs later, the result of all this attention, a hospital bill totaling about $20,000. Now, you know, as a staff, we said, well, you know what? You know, hospitals are that way. They know that they're not going to collect all their money, so just leave your bill at the hospital. But this student says, you know what? I'm being hounded by professional collection agents now who are after me night and day. 
Ladies and gentlemen, we cannot ask the hospitals in our community to do the charity that some of us might have to do. A special tenderness for those who are in our midst. I know how we think. We say, well, that's what welfare is for. Remember Ebenezer Scrooge? Isn't that what poor houses were for? My tax money. No, you can't. You can't put those of the same faith. Shove them out there and let the government solve our problem. They are our need. They are our needy. We must do something. We can't just sit here and not do anything. I want to end with a story that happened just Wednesday night. In this sanctuary, international, she is. Early 20s, she is. Fourth stage of liver cancer, she has it. Chemotherapy, and she threw up right here in prayer meeting. Far away from home. Hospital bills going out of sight. What do we say? Shouldn't got sick in our church. We'll give you good worship. Love the children's magazines we hand out. But don't ask us to share your pain. It's too much. I have enough problems of my own. God go with you. May you be fed. And may your medical care be provided. Amen. James says, if that's the way you live, you are not a church of Christ. Dwight, you're so harsh. No, I'm not harsh. I'm talking to myself. I'm talking to myself. And so today, I'm not asking you to sell your house. I'm not asking you. God isn't egalitarian. He's not saying, get, get rid of your car so that everybody walks. Not asking you to find a cheaper apartment, but I'm asking you to find a way. Find a way on this insert. Find a way you saw the needs. Find a way to break out of your comfort zone for somebody in need. In fact, you know what? We can, we cannot end this sermon right now. We cannot end this teaching and not respond. And so. We're going to take an offering right now. We have guards stationed at all the doors so that you cannot leave. Don't worry. Don't even. Some of you immediately. I saw that. You looked right to the door. How quickly can I get to that door? They're, they're big. They're burly. We want to take an offering right now. That's right. Take it. Not receive it. We, just, we want to take up an offering. We're not going to make this fancy. But you know what, ladies and gentlemen? How could we come to this teaching and not respond? And so between services, I, I emptied my wallet in the first church. And second church, I ran out to my wife. I said, give me a check, Karen. And I've wrote a check. I've written a check right here. Thank you very much, Conrad. I wrote a check. Now, some of you are saying, you know, Dwight, I'm really not prepared today. I know what's in my wallet, but I don't want to give that. Okay, let's say you're not prepared. Would you go home today? Take a tie of the envelope right in front of you. Go home today while this teaching is still fresh in your mind and you write out a check. A check that represents a commitment. I'm not asking you to empty your portfolio. The day will come when you and I will wish we had emptied it a lot sooner than we were forced to. But I'm asking you to give. Go home and just write the word poor. Pick a blank line on that tie of the envelope. Write the word poor. Put your name. If you wish, if you don't want to put your name, you don't have to. Next Sabbath, give it. 
Inasmuch as you have done it for the least of these, you did it to me. You did it to me. Last week our teaching, give to everyone who asks. You don't have to give a hundred to everyone. Some you need to give five hundred to. But if it's a hand, as Deuteronomy 15 says, that is open before you, the hand of your poor brother, <clears throat> God, <clears throat> God through Moses says, do not, co- do not close your hand. Open your hand. Open your hand. Ladies and gentlemen, God bless you. We're going to take this money. The staff will look at it. We'll put the combined from first and second service together. I know that by preaching this sermon, there are going to be emails now and there are going to be more hands that will be extended. We must respond to the needs as best we can. If you can think of some more creative ways than we've been able to, I wish you would let me know. We must do something. A special tenderness to those of the same faith. I want to end with a hymn and just want to sing the first and the last stanzas of this hymn. It's a beautiful hymn. I believe Brian Wren wrote it. 575. Let your heart be broken with a world in need. It's so plaintive. It's so melancholy. But it's the right tune for the message of Christ to join Him with a broken heart for a world in need.